Adoption Arena podcast is a positive, engaging look at adoption and fostering, presented by Joy Carter, an adoptee and advocate. Hello, you're listening to the first season of the Adoption Arena podcast, hosted by me, Joy Carter. On today's show, we're celebrating the role of social work in adoptions with two amazing social workers who are also transracial adoptees and great friends of mine. It just gets better. So please welcome Chris Atkins from the IAC, the Centre for Adoption and co-founder of TAG, the Transracial and Transnational Adoption Group, and Judith Alexis Augustine Craig, a speaker and social worker specialising in adoption and fostering in Canada. A very warm welcome to the both of you and a very warm welcome to all of you who are listening to the podcast. So Chris, if I could start with you, please could you tell everyone at home, everyone who's listening a little bit about yourself? Okay, my name is uh, Chris Atkins. I was um, born in Hong Kong uh, way back in the 60s, early 60s for that. that. Um, And I was then adopted in the UK and brought up in kind of West London. Um, by uh, white, British, uh, white British parents. I was part of the um, Hong Kong adoptee group that, that came over um, during the 60s, so uh, there were a few hundred of us who were adopted over here. Um, and I've really kind of, yeah, just kind of grown up, um, went to, obviously went to school um, with all the incumbents, um, kind of racism and the first, the first non-white child to go to primary school, the first non-white child in secondary school, and so on and so forth. Um, so I now, I still live in London, so having moved around the country um, quite a lot, I've, I settled back down, down south, as it were, um, a number of years ago. Um, and for my sins, um, I'm a qualified social worker. Not only am I a qualified social worker, I work in adoption. So um, having, yeah, <laughs> I'm not entirely sure I should be doing that. But anyway, um, that, 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 that's what I do. I now work for an organisation, obviously in the UK, that specialises in uh, working with people who are adopting from overseas. So I'm an adoption assessment manager, um, and that's that is what I do now. So um, yeah, so and uh, I must be one of the few people who was so fortunate because I actually got this job um, in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of lockdown. <laughs> so wow. yeah. Um, yeah, so that, that's me. That's me, really. So tell me a little bit about your adoption journey as well. Um, my name is Judith Jude, and I, like Chris, was adop- was adopted into a predominantly white family. I was born in Haiti, in the Caribbean, and I was born in the seventies, so just a, just a few years after Chris, and uh, brought over to Canada, where I am now residing, hence my accent, and uh, was adopted by my family into Montreal. Uh, so it was French speaking part of Quebec, and we resided there for about a year before we moved actually to the state. So I lived in America for about three years, and that was a very um, 
emotive time, I guess one would say. It was a time I really became very aware of identity. And, um, you know, at the time that, that, you know, as much of parts of the states are, it was very racially segregated. This was in the early 1980s. And um, my family being at the time, it consisted of my parents who were white. And they also had a biological daughter who was three years old when I joined the family. They went on to have additional children after that. But at the time the four of us were there, I being the only black member of the family, we lived on the white side of town. You know, it was very much segregated. So my first few years, I didn't, I wasn't around blackness. I didn't have that experience. I didn't have black friends and it really did impact my identity. And, you know, I really um, hated myself. Like I, I would literally want to scratch off the black because I didn't see black as beautiful. So that beginning was, it was very hard and I can see that it, it had it had a big impact on my life. My parents were very concerned, obviously, about this. And how does that rectify? We moved back to Canada, um, settling in Toronto. So it was very multicultural. And thankfully, as I say, my um, my new best friend and her mom, which is a, a Black American woman, and she had mixed children, dual heritage children, they lived around the corner. And they came over and welcomed us to the neighborhood. And we just became instant friends. You know, there was this thing. For me, it was my first Black friend, a, a Black little girl my, my age. We were a few months apart we just started playing and getting to know each other and we went to the same school and that relationship I always I always point out that relationship because for me what happened was I started to like blackness I started to love myself and my mom says within about two weeks of me just playing with this little girl and being around her family I stopped saying I didn't like my black skin I stopped saying I wanted a white pointy nose. I wanted that like, boop, like my mom, you know, and the, and the long hair. I wanted to do the whole, like, you know, you see on the commercials, the hair moving. <laughs> I wanted that experience. Cause that's what I saw reflected. Right. And my best friends in the States were white and they had long blonde hair. And so to me, the importance of that relationship and what that did for me and in, in learning to love myself is not lost on me. And, you know, as I think back to myself and that child, child stage I just think wow what a sad beginning but what a you know what a what a thankfulness I have for that for those friends and you know I've said to them now years later what an impact they had on my life because they truly truly did um my parents did add to the family so they went on to have another biological child a sister who's uh, two years younger than me then they adopted again from Haiti a little boy and then they had another biological child a son so there were five of us <laughs> growing up so it's a very busy and active household and and um, so, yeah, we were known as, you know, the Craig family, this mixed family, but it was a lot of answering questions of mm -hmm. who I was, how I fit into this family. So a lot of, again, those early stages was finding my place and finding my way, you know, and uh, it was, it, it presented many sort of internal challenges for me. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I also am a social worker, funny enough, funny how we adoptees get into this field quite often. And after, you know, going to, to, to university, I actually moved to the UK, hence why I know both of you lovely ladies. I moved over to the UK in 2005 uh, for an initially a two-year contract and ended up staying 12 years. So, you know, the UK is definitely has a, has a special place in my heart. I love London. And I had my girls. I have two, two daughters, two birth daughters. And I had my children in London. And, you know, so it's, it's been quite the adventure, uh, quite the journey, and just really an opportunity, really, of connecting with other, mm -hmm. other adoptees has mm -hmm. been um, very empowering for me. So, yes. Because uh, what I always love about whenever we all get together um, is it's quite rare to actually hear three transracial adoptees who all, as 
very, very different backgrounds, but actually we've all got lots of similar stories. So I'm just, for people who don't know my story, I'm going to say it very quickly. Um, I, again, was born into, um, in, in the 1970s, I'm from Nigeria. I was found, um, like you were found, Judith, I was found, well, I think you were found in the street, but I was actually found in the bus um, next to my dead twin. I was born to the Biafran War, I was picked up and taken to um, the local hospital along with 50 other babies and at the time the people who would go and to adopt me um, had been working out there professionally and doing missionary work, fallen in love, got married, had their first child. They went to the hospital and said what can we do to help and out of 50 babies they handed them me and then apparently my dad said after a few weeks we don't want to let this baby go um, and they decided to start that journey to adopt me and then the, the Biafran war got worse and then the foreign office was sending everybody back to the UK so then we came to um, I came here at the age of two with them that was very challenging because I think that I had no I had no paperwork so that so the, so they're trying to kick me out of the country the um, the British government but my parents fought to keep me here because obviously I had nobody um, and then and, and basically, we, we moved in, you know, we were growing up in Leicester, it was fine. There was multiracial, um, lots of other ethnicities there, but they were big Indian populations. I never, I felt different, but it wasn't too bad at all. I was fine, I was happy. And, you know, I wanted to go into the performing arts. And then we moved up to Scunthorpe at the age of 12. And that's when, for me, that my blackness suddenly happened because I suddenly became the only black child in the village. And I know that's the story that we all can talk about for hours when you become the only the, the, you know, the only person of your culture. Your parents are white. And then that then started up a whole five-year journey of being racially abused um, um, at school, bullying, um, I was beaten up, I spat upon all those sort of things, lost all my confidence, developed coping mechanisms, anorexia, all the usual things, self-harm, lack of identity. And it meant that when I finally came to London um, at the age of um, um, 18 for my degree, um I had I never met a black person before in my life so it was quite revolutionary for me to meet somebody who was black because it was good and bad it was healing but also I discovered the black community didn't also accept me so so that was another whole pile of trauma because I wasn't black enough for the black community um so that's something which I know we, we can all talk about um so let's 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 talk about the big issue of transracial adoption and how and how the how that has very how how that impacted you, Chris, at those early stages. I know that's something which we've talked about many times. Because we've all got that similar story when you realise, oh no, you're not the culture that people assume you to be. Like I know we've talked to you about when you go to Chinatown, people just assume you're, that you that you can <laughs> be yeah. that, that you're part of that um, um, culture. Only oh, totally are, but you're also totally not. How did you cope with that? <laughs> uh, I usually run away. <laughs> I said, you all learn to run. Run. I, I, yeah, I know. I, I think it, 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 it is difficult. And I, I, I think it, it's one of those things that, as, and particularly, I think, with the, with the Chinese community, which is very, it, it is a community. It's very noticeably a community. And so trying to, uh, to be fair, I don't even try to fit into that in, anymore because I, I don't have the language skills. And it, it was pointed out to me uh, by Chinese, by, by um, somebody I knew, a Chinese person I knew 
that I would never fit in because even if I learned the language, because I don't move like Chinese people do. I don't look like Chinese, look like because I don't dress like Chinese people and so on and so forth. So without even opening my mouth to another Chinese person who has grown up within the Chinese community, I'm very clearly, my culture is very westernized and I'm that that's how I'm identified. So it, it yeah, it is a it is a challenge, and um, I'm acutely you know, I go through stages of being acutely embarrassed that I don't speak Cantonese. Um, I get the questions as to why, and I get kind of backed into a corner because your adoption story and your history is yours um, to disclose at, you know, when you want to. Well, when I want to, but obviously looking like I do and sounding like I do, it's a bit of a dead giveaway, really. Um, <laughs> and it's difficult to sidestep the fact that I, I grew up in the UK. Um, the, yeah, and I think over the years, through many, many painful journeys into, like you, John, probably like you, you Judith, of trying to fit in with everybody else, you know, and going through the most awful, awful fashions and hairstyles in order to think that, you know, who on earth let me go? No, I did actually. Who on earth let me go and get a perm? Please, please. Yeah, a Chinese person with a perm. Who on earth? You know, and I went through all of that in an in, in effort to, to fit in. And over the years, and I, you know, as I said, I, you know, I'm in my late 50s now. And it's taken me, it took me the good part of, of you know, if you want to put it like that, half a century type thing to finally settle in to my own skin. And it's not the same skin as everybody else's. And it's, you know, it's, you can't even say it's the same as it were, the same skin as Chinese people because it, it you know, what it looks like on the outside. Yeah, um, so it's taken me all this time to kind of settle in and say, do you know what? Does it really matter? Do I have the energy? Um, no. I do surprise myself. Yeah, it is a constant surprise sometimes when I catch sight of myself. On, a, on a, you know, in the windows of a tube chain when it's dark, and you catch your reflection, and then I realise, oh my god, that's me. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's that, that, I, I know exactly that person opposite me. You know, it's so clearly Chinese, um, and that's me. But you know, I'm I, I'm comfortable with that, and that's fine. I'm comfortable with who I am. Um, I'm incredible. I have I have an 18 year old daughter who is mixed heritage, and she has grown up into being one of the proudest, strongest, you know. And she's incredibly proud of her Chinese heritage. So, and and of course, this weekend is Chinese New Year, and we can't go anywhere and celebrate. Apart from into your own garden, I know it's um it's 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 really I think this whole thing of identity. I mean, I mean, Judy, do do you think that that families are really prepared for transracial adoption? Do you think that enough is being done to really let parents know the importance of heritage and that you can't just you can't just ignore your past? 
a hundred percent. No, <laughs> that's the, that's the short answer. You know, and I, I say that because I've worked with a lot of families, I've done, tr you know, everything from training to assessments. And oftentimes when I'm in those spaces, in those rooms, I'm actually shocked in a, in not a good way, if that makes sense with some of the comments, you know, um, some of the prejudice, some of the racism that I see the microaggressions and I'm sitting there thinking now you're going to raise a child who, who's a different, racial background to you, but, but you have all these strong views or opinions, you know, um, and that's really concerning to me. And I really truly, I stand by this to this day, not, you know, adoption in the first place is not for everybody. It truly is a journey that is a lifelong. And when you adopt a child who is transracially different from you in the makeup of the majority of your family, that adds another layer and another layer and another layer, right? And I, I do believe that there needs to be a lot more work done with, with families. And truly it, it's, if you can't accept the whole child and that includes their ethnicity, then you really, sh you, you should really, you should really go elsewhere is, is truly my opinion. And, you know, back when I was younger, I used to think, oh, very altruistic and, you know, rainbow love and, you know, um, very much, you know, you heard the colorblind mentality that a lot of people carry and we know how dangerous and, 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 and damning that is, right? We aren't colorblind. We don't live in that society. We live, we're, you know, we live in this society and that is very real and we have to acknowledge it because when you don't acknowledge a child's racial ethnicity makeup background, you're not acknowledging your child. And I think that's a very, you know, people might think, oh, but, but no, that is what it is. You're not accepting all of them, right? You're taking the parts you want and life isn't like that. The other, the other thing that I always think is you have to equip your child because the way they're walking in the world, you know, as Chris, as Chris said, she walks into say Chinatown and people look and they see Chinese woman with some difference, yes, but they do see, you know, her as a Chinese woman. When I walk into a space, the first thing we're judged on or looked at is our, our appearance. That can't, that doesn't go away. And I think oftentimes what happens is parents get very excited, a cute little baby, oh my goodness, that's all great. But that lasts for what? I mean, the baby stage lasts for a very short time. But as you get older and older, you know, you're a child technically for 16, 18, 20 years. And then you're walking into this world as you, as an adult. And if you haven't been well equipped to manage what that is like as a, as a racialized person, then you are truly at a deficit. This section in all our podcasts is to say a special thank you to our sponsors and highlight events that are going on in the adoption and fostering community that you are doing. Why not contact us for more information about advertising your event or sponsoring Adoption Arena? Just send an email to hello at adoptionarena.com. Many thanks. Let's get back to the episode. What would you say to families? I mean, how do you equip families at the IAC, Chris, for example, to deal with these racial issues? Because I still feel that I'm hearing the same problems that parents are having with the chocolate box image of adoption. Yeah. Then they get the child and you just feel, are you really going to cope with that child's ethnicity? Yeah. I mean, to be fair, Joy, I, IAC, which is the Intercountry Adoption Centre, actually, <laughs> I have to say, very few of, we, we actually deal with very few transracial adoptions and most of our adoptions take place between people who, who are living in the in the UK and they're going back to country of birth or country of origin to adopt children because they want they want they, they want to adopt from for a child that, that ref, where they reflect the child's 
ethnicity and heritage. But I think one of one of the crucial things I, I, I think as we go as you grow up as a transracial adoptee and for for your parents if they don't reflect a child's ethnicity and heritage uh, and racial identity is actually acknowledging that you you're not you're not going to fully understand what it is like for that child and until you understand that and hear what that child has to say you're not going to learn from them. One of the things is 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 about being able to acknowledge that as a parent, of course, you know, as parents, you want to protect your children. You want you want to keep them from harm. Actually, the fact of the matter is, certainly, and certainly, you know, this last year with with Black Lives Matter and all that, yeah. You, you know, it's really difficult to protect your child, your older child particularly, once they go out there into the big wide world. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, what you need to do is be able to, A, as a parent, ensure that they're confident in coming back to you to talk to you about that. So leaving the, you know, be non-judgmental. You know, your child may come back to you and, you know, tell you about it, you know, don't cry because the thing with the, the 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 complexities with, with with adoptees is that on one hand they you know they they want to tell you about it but on the other hand they don't want to upset you <laughs> so your reaction you know, go out of the room afterwards be very attentive you understand hear what they're saying believe what they're saying and if you want to scream and shout and rage, go and do that later on. But be with them and hold them emotionally, psychologically and physically. Um, and I, I, I always remember, <laughs> so my daughter, um, when she was really small, she, attend, she, she went to after school club and I went over to pick her up one day and um as she as I, as I was putting her coat on her she as she came out from from tea, from tea or whatever she was having she was saying to me that a little boy in there and that she was only about she'd have been about six or seven at the time so she was saying that a little boy in there was going you're doing the chinese japanese what are these you know and she was saying what's that and of course i'm like putting the coat on and Saying, oh, that that yeah, that's not nice, is it, sweetheart? Yeah, trying to be kind. At the same hand, you know, I'm thinking, I would really like to squish this little boy, but yeah, that's not appropriate. And I'm a social worker, so that that <laughs> clearly wasn't appropriate. So, <clears throat> buttoned up her coat and walked her walked her out. And as I as I all all the other children by that time had come out of the dining room, and as I drew level with this little boy, um, she kind of looked at him, and he he looked at her, and I I looked. And then I, I kind of called him over, and of course he, he approached me like a like, like a petrified rabbit, you know, because he clearly thought that I was going to do something, yeah, inappropriate with him, having having upset my daughter. Um, but I, I, I bent down and I, I said to him, "Sweetheart, do you know where she comes from?" And, and he was like, "No." And I said, "Well, I said I tell you, one of these days we're going to go on this big place. She comes from way, 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 a long way away. Do you know where where Hong Kong is?" And he went, "No." 
And I went, well, it, it's a long, long way from here. You have to get on a plane and you have to be on that plane. You have to stay on that plane for all, all day and all night. And you get fed and then you get there and there's big buildings, big tall buildings and there's boats and all sorts. And while I'm talking, his eyes are getting wider and wider. And I'm telling him that we're going to go on this plane journey and stuff like that. Um, and my daughter at the same time is sort of tugging me, doing what six-year-olds, seven-year-olds do, which is try to interrupt you when you're in mid-flow. Um, and I finished the conversation with him by saying, and where did you, where do you come from then? Well, you yeah. Um, anyway, he said he was going to go off and, and find out where where he was going, where he was coming from, where he came from. My daughter, in the meantime, who tugged when I turned around eventually and said, "What do you want? Why are you interrupting me?" She went, "Mummy, I thought we were going to Greece this year." So there went my story. But this little boy, the next day when I went in to get uh, pick up my daughter again, the next day ran up to me. And said, do you know what? I went home and I asked my dad where, where he came from last night. And he told me, and we had this dialogue then. And this little boy came up and he, A, he always asked about my daughter. And it kind of, that's okay, I can talk to her now. But it was getting over that. It's like, And it was curious then. And, and children are curious. You know, and if you, if you, if you encourage that curiosity in an appropriate way, in a kind way, and in an inclusive way, then there's no reason why they, why children don't grow up accepting the differences. Yeah, it's, it's all about the accepting the differences, isn't it, rather than yes. feeling, yeah. um, feeling the need, I think, that, to try to become like everybody yeah. else. I think that's the hardest thing all of us have had to face, is that yeah. we will never be like everybody else. Huh. Um, and my parents were never going to understand what it was like to walk down the road and get shouted at and get pointed at. Um, yeah, they were never going to understand what it felt like in school to be discriminated against by a teacher because they thought that you were whatever. Um, but they did their best at the time. I mean, I had yeah, lovely parents who, who did what they thought was right at the time. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think that, that is always what I'm hearing all the time. I think with a lot of the other um, discussions we've been having on this channel is about parents you know no one's perfect and we've all got to have plenty of slack I think all of us who've been adopted or fostered we've always got to give people space because they're never going to really understand our experience and what it actually feels like unless they've actually been through it themselves um and that's why I think it's really important isn't that people join groups now obviously I know that I met you both at tag and I'll never forget that day um um, of, of, of being asked by um, Polita and yourself, Chris, to come and speak at the Transracial Transnational Adoption Group. Because I remember I was quite cocky. I was doing a bit of comedy, talking about my life. I thought I had the whole thing down in the morning. It was great. I thought I'm going to do it and then I'm going to split. And then I remember you, I remember Polita kept saying to me, um, that's Dr. Peter Harris, brilliant campaigner. Um, as we know, her memory will always be um, and really forging ahead with the adoptee voice and all her engagement work and social work at Goldsmiths. 
um, she was always saying to me, stay in the afternoon, stay in the afternoon. And I remember I did. And it was the most oddest feeling being in a room with other people like me. I'd never, ever had that before. And it was like the ground coming up and suddenly realizing that my experience, you know, I'd also tried to become white. I wanted to fit into this culture like my parents. I, you know, I, I swore blind that when I came to London, I would I would get blonde. I'd go blonde. And I would get the blue contact lenses and, my, and I, that would make me white and it would make me acceptable. Obviously, you can imagine I look like a total freak. I look at pictures now and it was just horrific. Um, but I thought it looked fabulous. I thought I'm becoming white now and I'm going to be accepted. But obviously, we know that the only real acceptance is through yourself. So I, 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 would, I know that you're both such a big part of my story. Um, now, what, I just wanted to end this little section on... Um, the, the grateful syndrome that I remember you spoke to me about, um, Judith. Can you just explain that to people listening? What is the grateful syndrome and how does that affect people who have been adopted, especially? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, I hear, I grew up hearing that word as many of us did, you know, you're so fortunate. Oh my God, you're so lucky. You know, it's a saviorism complex essentially that our parents did this amazing, wonderful thing and they saved us. And it's a very fine line between, yes, supporting and loving and adding to your family through adoption, which can be wonderful. It's a, it can be a, a wonderful experience and a wonderful journey. But I think what people often lose in this, in this process is the fact that there's loss in adoption. And so often we're, we just focus on the gains, right? We focus on, well, now you have a family. It's like, oh, I'm sad because I never knew my, my origin family. I didn't know what they looked like. I didn't have this. I didn't. Da, da, da. And as you talk about your loss, you're silenced, right? It's like, just be grateful. You got a family, just be happy. Like just get over that, you know? And it's so dismissed for adoptees that you don't, you shouldn't be crying over spilt milk, essentially. Just move on with life. You got this family. You're living in this developed country, you know, for all of us who came from these, you know, developing countries, if, as it were, and just be okay with that. And that's so dangerous because you internalize that. A lot of adoptees internalize that. I know I definitely did. And then it was confusing because I thought, but I'm not allowed to be sad. Like, I feel sad because I'd like to know, for example, what my origin family looks like. I didn't have that growing up, you know, and I'm now in reunion 37, I mean, I'm older than 37, but 37 years ago, I, I came into reunion and it took that long, a journey for me and, and learning things and finding out more about my, my background and my story. But, you know, that's a very poignant image and, and message to hear your whole life just be grateful for what you have you don't get to mourn and you know we hear this statement and, and it's out there i didn't coin it but you know the fact that adoption is the only sort of life-changing alteration where we don't get to grieve essentially and when you you step back and you realize that for a second it's like oh right because to have adoption you've had loss you know we've just it's it's there and the more we ignore that I believe the more damage that is being done. We need to let people grieve this loss. It's significant. It's and even as babies, you know, and that's what also the narrative you hear is, but you were a baby. So really, does it impact you? And we know through research, listen, the bonding starts in utero, the learning and the connectivity that starts in utero. So regardless of the age you were, you were still not raised up in your, you know, when you're adopted, you're not being raised by your origin family. That is a sense of loss. 
even in those circumstances, because you get the, the catchback, well, what if your, your family of origin wasn't a good quote unquote family? What if they were, you know, had inappropriate behavior or substance misuse, or there was abuse happening? I'm not saying for a second that those aren't important elements and we should just ignore those things. But you also have to weigh that up. There's still a loss there just because choices were made or behaviors or there was mental health issues or there were all these other barriers to that, that family parenting that child doesn't diminish the fact that there was loss. And I think the education, and that's why I'm so glad, Joy, that you're, you're doing this podcast, because the information needs to be shared more widely. And people need to understand the, the layers and the complexities in adoption. It's not just get a baby or a child and I'm done. We can go and live off and skip off into the sunset. You know, this is a lifelong journey for all of us in this, you know, I love this new wording, adoption constellation, which covers you know, us as adoptees, first families, families, whichever term you use, and then families. It's it's lifelong for all of us. This impacts us at different stages and ages. You know, as Chris just said, it impacts the next generation, the impact it had on her daughter, you know, to explain this history and to explain. I find that with my children, you know, they go out now with my parents, for example, and it was my daughter who's now 10 that said to me, mom, sometimes people look at us weird when with grandma and grandpa, and I don't like it. And it hit me, I thought, oh, right. My children are now also going to experience some of what I experienced when I was out with my family. And it was the stares, it was the looks, it was the questions, the ignorance that, that, you know, you have to go through oftentimes. And the fact that my children are still going to have that experience when they're with their aunts or their uncles, or, you know, except for my, my brother who's also Haitian, but for any other members of my family, they have that experience. And it was, it was like, right, I've got to equip them now and give them the skills to manage that. And it's not just being grateful for it. It's, it's layered and it's complex because it's, it's life, you know? So I really, really feel strongly that we've got to do away with that word, take that word out. And, you know, just to quickly add on to that, I think the other way that people look at it often is, our parents who've done this great and mighty thing it's also they've added to their family so we and i you know we're we're pretty awesome i think you know we're all amazing ladies here but we're also adding to these families truly right you're not just you're not just taking and i think that's also often lost unfortunately is it's like what are we as the children coming into these families whether you're joining a family because um you know a couple is not able to physically or biologically have have children or if they're adding to their family through adoption, right? There's all these different different ways, but we're adding something of, of, of great value, I dare say, you know, truly to these families. And that also is often missed, is it's not it's not a one-way street. And parents often who who have that awareness, and I love when I see parents who who say that to people, they're like, oh, aren't you wonderful, you adopted. And parents will say, actually, I'm the blessed one or I'm the fortunate one. My child has brought X, Y, and Z into my life. So that acknowledgement is key for, for parents, you know, to, to use that language and for their children to see them in co covering them in that as well. You know, that's, that's something that I think is, is really important for adoptive parents to make sure they're, they're verbalizing that. That's absolutely beautiful. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you so much for listening. And if you're interested in joining TAG run by Chris Atkins, the Transnational and Transracial Adoption Group, then please visit the website ttag.org.uk to get more information about this powerful, unique group for adopted adults. I believe it's imperative for all of us to join some kind of a group 
on our adoption journey because we really need the support from those who can relate to you, your story and support you and help you find those really important answers. Or just join us, visit adoptionarena.com. Next week, we continue this conversation when we discuss some of the changes in the UK surrounding overseas adoption. What actually has changed and why? And what does that mean for couples in the UK wanting to adopt from overseas? There's an extra layer that's been added. Adoption Arena podcast is brought to you in conjunction with AdoptionArena.com. It's aimed at those interested in or affected by adoption, fostering and care issues. Join us as we discuss the big issues and topics in the arena that might affect you. We would love for you to support our work at Patreon. Go to Adoption Arena and receive exclusive interviews, listen to seminars and training and be invited to our live Zoom meetings and events. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Joy Carter and I look forward to hearing from you with any feedback, suggestions and questions. Adoption Arena, a sound pathway to a great future.